and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. This is Eric Arneson, and today I'm here with Andrew Watt, who is a blogger, an artist, and a consultant. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. Delighted to be here, Eric. I came across your stuff on Twitter, I think, um, primarily because you were you were sewing things. Well, actually, you were. It was the um, the Neo Orphic hymns that I came across, which we'll get to later. But um, but what also got me really interested is on your blog. You've got all of this great stuff that you've sewed, and um, as a fellow occultist and sewer. Uh, I suppose the first question that I have is, uh, what do do we call ourselves sewers? Is that what we are? Are we tailors? Ah, it, it's an excellent question. You know, um, there's this word seamstress. Yeah. But we're not seamsters. There's no seamsters union that you can belong to. And I don't know that I would characterize myself as a tailor. I think that being a tailor involves a level of proficiency in altering clothes, in making pre-made clothes fit better, in being able to design an outfit from scratch. Mm -hmm. So sewer is probably the right word. The only trouble is that when you type it, it looks like sewer and we're definitely not sewers. (laughs) Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I don't think sewer is a very, and it also, it kind of sounds like um, a farmer, you know? Yeah. Like like he's sowing seeds. Uh, So we don't have a really good word for that in English, I guess. Um, Cause yeah, I also feel like a tailor is going to have a lot of, like, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of skill that you have to, you have to be able to, like, make a suit from scratch in order to be a tailor. I I think that that's right. I think that if you know how to make a suit from scratch, and I have done it, and I will not wear that suit in public. (laughs) (laughs) Not not because it has any sort of magical properties. I mean, in a sense, it does. But, and we'll talk about that later. But I don't think I look good in it, even though... (laughs) I followed all of the rules as I understood them. I've done it once. Uh-huh. At some point, I'm going to do it again, but not yet. <laughs> well, that's more advanced than I ever got. I have uh, I have altered lots of um, jackets and pants and shirts and things, but I've never actually... I've only made one pair of pants uh, from scratch, and they were more like pajama pants, and I made them for a friend, and they turned out okay. They were a little small. I... I, I I mean, I know what I did wrong now, but it was it was my first attempt. And then I also made myself a hat, which was way too big. So um, uh, knitters go through exactly the same problem. You yeah, know, my mom, my mom has been making the same wool pattern of a navy watch cap from World War II. Mm-hmm. It sort of comes in four or five different sizes, but she's old enough now that she starts it and she can't remember whether she's doing a small or a large or a medium. Oh, so and then she realizes two thirds of the way through, Oh, I've been switching back and forth between medium and small or between extra large and large. So the size the hat- is always a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> the size is definitely always a surprise. I feel like that is, that is my current level of creating clothes from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> 
there is a list from the Middle Ages of the seven practical arts, uh-huh. and it's it's masonry, it's hunting or warfare, it's carpentry, it's uh, I I for some reason I can't pull them up right at the moment, but one of them is vestaria. It is mm-hmm. essentially taking a sheep shearing it and going all the way to a set of clothes at the end all of the different practical arts involved in that oh my god that's uh, that's a lot of work i mean just the practice just like getting wool from uh from like shearing a sheep you know ex- getting the lanolin out i don't even know how they do that there must be some kind of boiling and drying process or something well- boiling and drying and in some parts of the world they leave the lanolin in because it helps increase the waterproofing and the wind resistance of of the finalized fabric or knit work oh that makes a lot of sense okay well so how, there was did, a, how did you get started with the sewing we we mentioned before that for a long time i was a middle school teacher for the mm-hmm. last dozen years of my was involved in a variety of efforts to try to update and modernize the curriculum. For part of that time, it was bringing in computer science to history and English classrooms. And for some of the time, it was starting up a makerspace. And somebody gave our makerspace a sewing machine. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn how to use it. There were great tutorials on YouTube. There were great books, articles. I read an enormous amount, and as it so happened, I was also working my way through the curriculum of one of the various magical orders, and I had to make the sash that goes from one shoulder to the hip and then down. And essentially, it's a deacon stole from the Roman Catholic Church. You know, it's got, you know, it's about four inches wide, and it goes up over the shoulder from somewhere near the ankle and comes back across the back. There's a little tab at the hip that holds the front and back together. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty simple pattern. And yet you're assembling it out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven pieces, maybe twelve pieces in all. And essentially you assemble everything backwards and inside out, and then you you do what's known as turning. You yeah. take the whole thing and you turn the thing that you've assembled inside out so that it's now outside out and inside in and suddenly you have a stole and it doesn't look anything like what you thought it was going to look like because your seams aren't quite straight or (laughs) or you you haven't marked something properly or you haven't ironed something properly and and suddenly you realize oh Making clothing is an exercise in practical topology. It's literally designed to stretch fabric in different ways. And as it does so, it's stretching your brain in various ways. Yeah, I had that experience too. I, I, you know, I've described it this way before. I always think of sewing as uh, inside out floppy geometry. <laughs> because yes. you really have to think about how everything is going to go together. There's there's restrictions in, I guess they aren't always restrictions. They're just properties of the cloth, like how how sharp can you get a corner, or uh, what direction does it stretch in. I think a lot of people who who never have to sew anything never really think about the fact that like 
different types of fabrics stretch in different directions, different amounts. Yeah, and some of that stretch is a property of the material of the thread, and some of it is a property of how it's woven, Mm -hmm. and some of it is a property of both thread and weaving process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most... Most cotton fabric, which is probably the easiest stuff to find in the U.S. these days, fancy wool is hideously expensive and you usually have to special order it. But nearly all of it is simply straight side to side, up and down weaving. It's square, yeah, essentially. And the whatever tension it has comes from shifting the sides of the fabric around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then and then knit and woven stuff behaves very, very differently. A t-shirt is knit fabric uh, mm-hmm. and denim is woven. So that gives people who aren't familiar with working with fabric a sense of it, that a t-shirt has a lot of stretch in it and your jeans probably don't have a lot unless you've got the kind that's 4% spandex. Yeah, girl, <laughs> girl jeans. Uh, yeah, and also... Some boy uh, jeans, too. Let's yeah, not that's forget. true. And isn't denim usually uh, a twill pattern as well, right? So it's got like yeah. a diagonalness. So it's not necessarily square. It's usually diagonal in the knit. So if you're wearing jeans right now, take a look at them. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so the the grid on jeans is sort of diagonal to it. So the thing that I really love about it, and you know, the more I look around, the more I find um, other occultists who are doing, um, who are doing sewing and other fabric arts. But um, but it seems like there's so much more attention being given to uh, to people who have magical practices who are like, uh, you know, making wands and. Uh, jewelry and their pentacles and their crystal balls and their and their circles and like all of this other stuff um and it, it feels like the, nobody that there isn't enough appreciation of the, the the craftsmanship and the practice and the the kind of the fun of of sewing your tools um so i'm just sort of wondering like have you come across interesting things that you've decided to sew that have helped you in your practice that nobody else seems to be doing? Yeah, I belong to uh, one of John Michael Greer's various order projects. Mm-hmm. I belong to the the Druidical Celtic Golden Dawn. And I had to make a set of banners. I've now made the same set of banners twice. No, three times. And you know, it's this broad expanse of black fabric with three rays of light coming out of the, the center of a, uh, a trilithon, three stones. Mm-hmm. And then there's another much more complicated one, which is two interlocking squares. One of them is green and one of them is yellow, and they overlap in sort of a knotwork pattern. Making those two banners radically improved the quality of my temple space. Yeah, I can imagine. And so I have the prototypes. I have the ones that I made first. And I did them based on Greer's designs. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he had an actual set of of banners. He hasn't talked about the set that I gave him one year for for Christmas, sort of as thanks for starting the the order. And maybe he'll talk about that at some point. Maybe he won't. 
But another fellow in the order who lives out in California bought a pair of these and he had a chance to work with somebody else in the order and they hung them and they said that both of them were were having a conversation and then they just sort of stopped talking and realized we're not behaving in temple space the way that we should and right. they had to they had to take the banners down before they could continue their conversation they had to uh they had to they had to basically close down the temple space that they had created because the banners were vibrating at one another east and west across the room where they were meeting mm-hmm. which is of course what they're supposed to do <laughs> that's great it worked <laughs> it worked you know you you get a a really competent occultist like John Michael Greer who designs the emblems and then you you actually execute them in you know not in anything particularly fancy cotton cloth and and some uh uh what are they called tassels hanging from the ends that help give it some weight and keep it hanging straight and suddenly the symbols themselves are speaking to one another and they're speaking to you on both conscious and unconscious levels yeah that's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I guess for me, like I, I haven't done any banners, but I, I sew like my own altar cloths. And um, and the one thing that I've spent a lot of effort in is like making the perfect tarot card bag. So I have a tarot card bag design that sort of like wrap around and it uses a pretty heavy fabric and it keeps the cards protected because I always carry a deck with me. And um as one does. Yeah, as one does. <laughs> but it ends up, uh, it adds like this whole new level of uh, of connection to, to what you're working with. You know, when you're like, oh, I made I made all of this stuff. Um, and even even for, you know, really, like probably the thing that, that anybody could get started with is you go down to your local fabric store and get, um, what do they call them? The, the quarter yards, like That's- this fat quarters yeah you get a fat quarters of the planetary colors and you can and you can just cut those up to make uh little tiny bags for your for like amulet bags or whatever um and i do that a lot like sometimes if i just have one of those days where i'm like i'm gonna make a jupiter thingamajig and i'll just put it all together in a little bag that i just sew up right on the right on the fly yeah and and essentially that is straight sewing right? Mm-hmm. If you have a sewing machine, you can do it with a sewing machine. You take two squares of, of cloth, you flip them together, you sew a seam that is a U-shaped seam around those two squares, mm-hmm. and the top is the opening of the bag. You stuff whatever it is that you need that bag to contain. You, or sorry, you turn it, right? We were talking mm-hmm. about turning earlier. You yep. have to turn the bag inside out so that right. the... like a pillowcase. Like the seams, so that the seams are on the inside. It'll look really nice and clean, except for one raggedy edge. And you can then turn those raggedy edges inside and do what's known as a top stitch. Mm-hmm. And that bag will never come undone. Yeah. And you can shove it full of, like, herbs if you're doing that kind of magic, or you know, a paper amulet or rocks or whatever the hell fits in there and it'll, it'll all stay. Right. Yeah. And it comes back to some of, of our current 
theories about animist magic that when you are activating a physical talisman like this, the fabric acts as the shell or the skin of a living creature, right? It's, it's hmm. the thing that holds the organs inside and the, the organs of this spirit that you're calling into the bag is going to use the silver ring inside as its heart or it's going to use the chamomile as, as the liver or it, the metaphor is imperfect, but I hope that I'm making myself understood that the things that you put into the bag are the thing that is, is sort of calling the spirit and granting the energy to the spirit, but right. the fabric is the skin that's holding that thing together. I, I love that analogy. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that makes, uh, that makes really good sense. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's totally, and, and then, you know, just, you know, the, the amount of effort you put into it. So I, when I do little things like that, I, I like to sew them by hand. Um, absolutely. Cause it, it doesn't take too long. You know, I mean, if you get, you, you get pretty fast at it eventually. And, uh, and it just has a, it, you know, it has a personal feel to it. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, yes. There's a, there's a book that has just come out, which I haven't even finished reading yet. And it's called the geometry of hand sewing. Ooh. Hang on. Let me, uh, it's not within reach. But the point of that book is that they've identified that most traditional stitches are actually built on a geometric grid. That if you learn the grid system, then you can learn to think of stitches as doing different kinds of activities. And that means that the stitching itself can be used as a way of calling a specific kind of spirit to do specific kinds of work. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah I'm thinking about that now I mean it it's just it 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 also like plays more into like the geometry you know the the floppy geometry idea but in addition like the stitch itself could have a shape that reflects uh you know a planetary influence or a planetary intelligence um hmm I had not that's... even that's really cool I feel like there's a lot to explore in uh the intersection between sewing and magic there's an enormous amount to explore and i think that by and large it is an unwritten magic and i think that part of the reason why it's an unwritten magic is that it is so much work <laughs> to do <laughs> yeah and yeah. what i mean by that there was a shirt discovered in norway when a glacier melted back you know there's global ch climate change at work mm -hmm. the Enough of the glacier melted that they found a, a teenage kid's shirt. I, I feel for the mother who had to probably beat her child for coming home shirtless from the mountains of Norway. But mm -hmm. the shirt got left on a rock somewhere, and, and it's been inside of a glacier for maybe a thousand years. And the estimate, based on what we know about production techniques estimated that that shirt contained around 700 to, to 800 hours of human labor. Oh, that is so insane. Right? Shearing the sheep, carding mm -hmm. the wool, spinning it into thread, turning the thread onto the loom, turning the, the stuff that's on the loom into actual fabric, changing the fabric, 
into pieces that can then be sewn together. 700 to 800 hours of work for one shirt. And then you put embroidery onto it and it's easily a thousand hours. Right. Nope. Nobody has time to write that down, but of course they're doing magic because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're doing all of this, this enormous amounts of handwork in order to produce one garment and it's boring work, so you're singing or you're telling stories while you're doing it. It is re-enchanting the world, as Gordon talks about, right? That, yeah, that making yeah. clothes and making things out of fabric is itself an act of enchantment. You know, I absolutely agree with that. And I, I was just sort of thinking about, like, it, it's also a cooperative act, right? So this is like a pre-capitalist society, but the you know the the mom who who like embroidered the shirt probably isn't the same as the person who sheared the sheep or the person who carded the wool. Like she might have, she might not even have uh, have spun the wool, even though she might have like you know worked on the loom or whatever. Like this, it was probably like the entire village was needed to create that one shirt. Almost certainly, yeah. And, and you also have to consider that, uh, that an enormous amount of the labor is almost certainly slave labor, right? Yeah. That, that the amount of work that's involved in this is simply not going to be done by people who are at the top of the economic spectrum. But everybody needs to be involved in this work in some way or another. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, now uh, so much of it, you know, especially like – uh, you know, we tend to take clothing for granted so much now. And, uh, and I guess I pay a lot of attention to this. Just, I spent a little while as a, as a bit of a clothes horse and I really just sort of loved the experience of finding like really nicely made, um, clothing, you know, stuff that's going to last forever, stuff that had obvious care put into it. Uh, maybe not always stuff that was made by hand, but, but you can see now, like everything is so automated, you know, robots make our clothes, basically. Um, I got a story to tell about that. I oh, worked. Yeah? With, I got a. I had a. I worked with a woman for a number of years, and her husband was a bespoke weaver. You'd weaver. call him up. Yeah, you'd call him up. You'd only find him by word of mouth. Guy didn't advertise, but you'd call him up, and you'd say. I have the frames, the gilt frames for two chairs that probably came from Versailles or from Vincennes Palace. You know, they're Louis XIV mm -hmm. era chairs. And I want to make the blue fabric with the gold fleur-de-lis to match. Wow. And he would weave it. And, you know, his prices probably started at three or $400 a yard and went up from there. Right. Oh, that's crazy. What so a, what a cool job though. But he learned his trade in the north of England in the weaving mills in the north of England until it was too expensive to mm -hmm. make wool in Great Britain or to make cotton. Mm -hmm. The mill closed, the machines were sold, maybe sold for scrap, and what with one thing and another he emigrated to America and started weaving here. 20 years go by. He gets a call. He is the only guy from his factory who's still in the weaving business, right? Yeah. The machines are now, I think, in Vietnam. I'm not going to get the places right, but 
the the machines are now in Vietnam, and would he come to Vietnam and help teach people how to run these machines? Mm -hmm. Ten years later, he goes to, I think, Mozambique, because it's too expensive to run the machines in, in Vietnam now. They have to go to a different country. So now they're in Mozambique. Wow. Three years later, he gets another call. Now they're somewhere in the back of beyond in China, and the weaving shop is in China. Same machines that he had worked on in 1963 in the north of England. <laughs> That's crazy. Th those machines were built out of cast iron parts in 1826. Wow. So here are these machines bumping around the world in various ways, right? Mm -hmm. And as they bump around the world, they are looking for a place where you can pay the workers pennies a day. Right. Because the machines were built at a time when you could only pay workers pennies a day in order to make a profit. So sooner or later, they're going to be scrap, or at least we can hope that they're going to be scrap. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's... Because that <laughs> because as local wages rise, the owners of the machine go, oh, we can't do business here anymore. We got to sell them. And they sell. Oh, God. <laughs> and and it's they totally, sell. It, they're, they're slave labor machines. Like they're machines that basically run on, on as they're close to slave run labor on as slave they labor. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. And, and that means that you have no idea where or when the machines were built that make your t shirt or your mosquito netting when you're in some tropical country without good water supplies or mm -hmm. you have no idea. <laughs> you really don't. <clears throat> yeah. But I mean, from what I've heard, like a lot of mass produced clothing, they, they have these, um, they have basically like these computerized uh, cutting and sewing machines that do a lot of sort of the, the big work. And then detail work is sort of left to uh, individuals with sewing machines, I think. Do you want more insight into your next big ritual? Do you need to shatter mental blocks in your business pursuits? It's time for the tarot to crack open the eggshell of your reality. This is Eric Arneson, co-host of My Alchemical Bromance and the guy behind Arnomancy. I am now offering live online tarot readings over Skype. I even got a brand new webcam. Visit arnomancy.com to learn more and use the code BROMANCE to get 25% off your next live online tarot reading. Remember, that's arnamancy.com. Check it out today. Do you own a serger? I don't own a serger. They're also called overlock machines. Um, I do not own a serger. Um, I've looked at how they work, and uh, I mean, sergers are pretty neat, but uh, usually I just use my sewing machine with a, and I um, do a, what is it like an over cast uh stitch and then a straight stitch and then i trim it manually it's yeah slightly more work but i think it does about the same thing yeah pretty much but the notion that there's a machine that's capable of doing the straight stitch the zigzag stitch and the trimming all at the same time mm -hmm. like that is that is the thing that makes modern ready to wear off the shelf clothing from everything from the gap and old navy possible oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean my my sewing machine it has a lot of programmable modes but um it's all just like stitches you know so it's 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 still pretty cool um yeah so so then uh have you made your own ritual robes and that sort of stuff 
I have. And I, I wrote an article. That's one of the reasons why we're talking now, which is called Neglect Not the Robe. Oh, yes. I remember that article. <laughs> um, uh, how, how did that experience go? A huge part of the process was finding what pattern to use. Mm-hmm. Um, that you you go to the Simplicity Pattern and Joanne Fabrics, or you look online for a pattern, and there's not a whole lot to choose from. Like, there's not very many people that sell wizards' robes patterns that you feel like, oh, I totally look awesome in this, and this feels like the right robe. Mm-hmm. Well, but it you, comes back. You have to get something where your sleeves aren't going to catch on fire. <laughs> you have to find something <laughs> that your sleeves don't catch on fire, or, and I this is the solution that I finally hit on is that you have to adopt what I, I I don't call them this, but maybe this is the right language for them. You have to adopt temple gesture, like. Uh, one of my teachers said that all ritual actions are functional in origin, but ontological in reflection. Ooh, I like that. In other words, you start out by making things or doing things because it's the functional way to do it. Mm -hmm. But once you think about them, you realize that there's there's a deeper or more intentional meaning behind them. If you wear a robe in temple or in your magical circle that has big sleeves, you have to move more slowly, you have to hold your hands in such a way that one hand is catching the sleeve, mm-hmm. while the other hand is passing over the flames on the altar. You, There's a heightened awareness that comes from wearing a robe in temple space. Well, it's uh, it's like a practice in mindfulness, right? It's, uh, it's Absolutely. W- one of those basic meditation tricks that we're all supposed to learn when we're first starting out like how do you be mindful how can you be mindful in temple how can you be mindful in your ritual but if you need to be mindful in order to keep from catching on fire or accidentally (laughs) sitting on your incense burner or whatever like so i I totally see where that comes from you know it, it is functional in origin but what was it ontological in reflection is that what you'd said ontological in reflection yeah i love that phrase temple gesture uh i hope that that's in your blog post (laughs) i don't know that it is but it should be and maybe i'll have to write an article about temple gesture yeah i think you should i'm i'll 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 remind you if you if you run out of (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that's that's uh I, i there's so much to explore in this sewing stuff i i i feel like we could probably talk the for an entire hour about it, but I really, really want to ask you about some of this other stuff. Like, I really want to talk about your Neo-Orphic hymns, which I love. They are, they are so well put together. Um, what led you to those? Or, or how about this? Let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's assume that our listeners have never read any of your Neo-Orphic hymns. So why don't you kind of like describe them? Well, Thomas Taylor in 1775 did the, I think the first English translation of the Orphic hymns, which are from ancient Greece and they are his versions anyway, are very loose translations. They're in rhyming metrical poetry like you would find in the, I don't know, the doggerel verse of 
of the 1700s. And I thought, oh, this is really elegant. This is a great way to do ritual. And several other magical practitioners had recommended his. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is pretty good, but I'm a poet. And I believe genuinely in the power of words to shape mind. And I genuinely believe that not only do words shape mind, but that acts of creativity are part of the way that we connect with magical ideas and magical entities. So the natural response for me was, how do I take the general themes of the Orphic hymns as I currently understand them and write my own versions of them? Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was working my way through Rufus Opus's red work, black work. I've now forgotten what order they go in. But his course of study using the, the Trithemian rite, otherwise known as the art of drawing spirits into crystals, or the art of, yeah. Yeah. So that's, and, that's the system that's outlined in his Seven Spheres book. That's right. Okay. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write my own set of hymns, partly because I figured this was a way of translating what the spirits were saying to me into my own language. And two, when you write a poem, particularly a poem that has to follow rigid rules about meter and rhyme, you're training your brain. You're training your brain to think along particular imaginative lines. Okay. And that makes sense. So then, um, did you, and you've done all seven. Yeah, Thomas Taylor translated all 87 hymns. I've only done the seven that are specific to the planets. I've done others, but they're not really published. How much of and the... Some of them aren't publishable. <laughs> oh. <laughs> how, uh, how, how much of uh, Thomas Taylor's um, work did you, did you use in your, in your, um, in your versions? Did, are most of them... Um entirely of your own doing or did you use thomas taylor for uh, inspiration i definitely use thomas taylor for inspiration i mean i'm very much aware that that great writers steal but mediocre writers borrow and i'll leave it to the reader to decide whether i'm borrowing or stealing <laughs> um, well i mean you know so like for some of the uh, for some of the deities thomas taylor has like multiple hymns you know so there's uh, like four or five of them dedicated to zeus i think there's a couple to aphrodite um and uh you know at least and i haven't i haven't actually gone back and and looked since i first um sort of put the hymns together that, that i use but i know that in you know the the incredibly battered uh printout that i have next to my altar with the with the thomas taylor hymns on it the aphrodite hymn is incredibly long <laughs> and a lot it of the is. other ones are are short like aries for instance is is incredibly brief um did you uh are yours more uniform in length like did that enter into it at all do you do you sing them I don't sing my own I sing Thomas Taylor's uh-huh but I haven't found the tune or the the song that goes with mine on the other hand they are all the same length 
And they all follow the same metrical scheme, which is called an ode. It's three verses. There are ten lines per verse. They're all in iambic pentameter. There's a rhyme scheme, which I think goes A, B, A, B, C, D, E, C, D, E. Uh-huh. Within each verse. That's pretty, so, That's nice. And... And there's both a rigidity of that kind of form and a really nice structure to them. I found that three verses was about the right length to get my head in the game. Mm-hmm. That I really liked laying them out in that way. And you have them all collected and published as an ebook? They're not as an ebook. They're simply a page on my website, which I think is. Uh, andrewbwatt.com slash poetic hyphen catalog slash the neo-orphic hymns. And if you search Google for the neo-orphic hymns and my name, you'll probably find them. I will absolutely put a link to them in the show notes. You mentioned that you'd worked through uh, the Seven Spheres system, Rufus Opus' Seven Spheres system. Uh, How did you find that? Like, What was that experience like? Uh, Some parts of it were very hard. Some parts of it were easy. I would say that it led to some of the most productive times during my career and some of the most successful times mm-hmm. during my career. I mean, Rufus Opus says that during his, during, I forget whether it's in the book or not, or whether it was in the course material that he published while he was still writing the book. But he said something to the effect of the the red, the black work, the red work, or the black work, the white work, and the red work is followed by the green work, mm-hmm. which is actually living out that experience in daily daily life and producing wonders. Right. And I produced wonders. The that period when I was writing these hymns and doing this work were enormously productive. I had my first art show as an artist. I started up a maker space in my school. They originally told me we were going to have a budget of like $10,000 and we wound up having something more like $800 and we did it anyway. Wow. <laughs> and brought the brought the project in under budget anyway. So when you talk about uh, and and then uh, the maker space, like what what sort of maker space was it? Did you have for a while, we had a 3D printer, mm-hmm. we had, which is, you know, another great way for magicians to think about topology. I like it less oh, yeah. than sewing, but learning to think in three dimensions in terms of both an inside of an object and an outside of an object, to be able to visualize that and to plan for it and then to design the thing with the software is is tremendously useful. Mm-hmm. Among other things, you also learn to become quite skilled with 3D modeling software and learning to be familiar with modeling software can be a great gateway to astral projection because if you can visualize it really clearly on a computer screen in 3D, it's much easier to imagine it when your eyes are closed. Oh, sure. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, some, that's a good insight, actually. I, that's definitely... Um... Well, I mean, I one of the practices that I use is the art of memory, which which is a lot of like three D visualization, you know, visualization inside of spaces, um, and 
uh, one of the warnings that you get in a lot of the old texts about the art of memory is like you you should start with real places because otherwise you're going to have difficulty you know putting together 3D spaces in your mind uh, and it's kind of along the same line right like you in, you you build a 3D object and when you get used to the structure uh, looking at it even just looking at it on a screen or or looking at it in a way that it can actually be created in the real world it's easier to see in your mind later on absolutely and the tools are becoming more and more sophisticated in terms of what it is that you can do and what you can think about having in each space Mm -hmm. and it's definitely a, a powerful tool for inventing those kinds of imaginary spaces that you use in palace of memory yeah for sure um oh actually you've got memory palace stuff on your blog I do. So you've you've done work with this as well. I have. I used it in part for teaching Latin for a number of years, and I found it was really effective. The kids that bought into the idea of Palace of Memory mm-hmm. did much better on quizzes. They retained vocabulary for a longer period of time, developed much better skills in all of their classes. Oh, yeah. I've actually been using it uh, to learn Hebrew. <laughs> so yeah uh okay but hold on all right so uh I, i'm i'm scattering our topics all over the place i want to just rewind a, a a hair back to the seven spheres thing um sure so rufus rufus opus's seven spheres at least in the book version there are props that you need right so you need like the um the circle of art and you need all of those lamans that you hang your your neck the, there are various uh, bits and pieces that you have to you know, sure and make. you should totally store those objects in bags of the right color <laughs> <laughs> right but how did you make the objects did you did you uh just make them out of paper or did you use a 3d printer for any of it or what was your what was your methodology i would say that a lot of that stuff was at the beginning of my exploration of makerspace stuff Mm -hmm. and the really cool thing about the art of drawing spirits into crystals especially if you know your mundane job is we'd like you to build us a makerspace is that you ask the spirits for help with building this makerspace and the spirits go look here's an opportunity to get a sewing machine. <laughs> here's an opportunity to get a 3D printer. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they were really clear with me anyway that paper, lamins, and, uh, and simply a, a painted wooden stick as opposed to an actual piece of ebony mm-hmm. were fine. That, that having the paper objects was totally okay with, with them. And I think that that's an important lesson that you have to recognize that some spirits really want exactly the right material and others of them are sufficiently helpful that they will let you do things to the best of your ability with the tools that you have because they care about the communication, not about the materia. Mm-hmm. I think that's, um, especially in like the older grimoire stuff, I think that's becoming more and more uh accepted at least well known as we uh discover more and more of like working man style grimoires or lower class style grimoires like the uh what was the 
The one that Joseph Peterson just put out, uh, Spiritum Sanct. Oh, wait, it's sitting right there. No, it's not. Where did I? Oh, yeah, this guy. It's called uh, Secrets of Solomon, the, the, the Venetian Inquisition um, one that he just put out, where a lot of the pentacles and stuff are just so, so much simpler than you get in, in the more sophisticated um, Solomonic grimoires. Uh, you really sort of are brought to the realization that like, oh yeah, some of these incredibly difficult setups with like lion skin belts and golden chalices and bronze vessels like that. That's, that's rich man's magic. <laughs> it is rich man's magic. And it is also the case that at least some of the spirits in each of these classes. And I, I there's this bit there's this bit in one of the grimoires. No, it's not in the grimoires. It's in Yamblichus, mm-hmm. where he says, you know, there's the god, and then the god has a variety of archons and archons that are presently ruling, mm-hmm. and archangels and angels and intelligences and spirits and demigods and ascended souls that serve. And I have no idea often whether I'm talking with hello whether i'm talking with Mm -hmm. a spirit or an ascended soul or an archangel or whether i'm talking with the god but they're borrowing one another's charism but you're talking with something and the something is saying the paper ring is fine here's the next step that you should do in order to make the maker space or your career a success. Mm-hmm. And that thing, that piece of advice that they offer is in fact exactly the right thing at the right time. Right. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, <clears throat> that's actually really cool that you sort of incorporated that work into your, um, sort of career path or everyday life. Like I, I like that a lot. I, um, I don't know that I've done that as much. I haven't, I haven't completed the seven spheres system, but I've done most of it. <laughs> um, I don't think you ever entirely complete it. Yeah. I think, I think that you leave behind elements of the system as you become more familiar with it. I don't do very much more than light some incense and say the Orphic hymn of the day. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I'm out of communication because I haven't done the full ritual setup. You need to do the ritual setup at the beginning Mm -hmm. and, and your practice sort of simplifies over time as you develop a more familiar relationship. Right. Right. Yeah. I've definitely seen that. Um, and then, so you also mentioned that you've gone through uh, Jason Miller's strategic sorcery course. Which I think is a brilliant course. And yeah. I, there's a lot of really elegant material in there. What is it like? Uh, is that is that too broad a question? Uh, so let me ask, so is the strategic sorcery course sort of like an introductory course? Does it does it sort of uh, like build a framework for a daily practice or does it build a framework for um, like operative sorcery? Uh, like how does he, how does he sort of go about it? I would say that there's a fair bit of his course, which comes out of his encounters with 
Tibetan shamanism and Buddhist practice in, I think, Nepal. Wow. And, and I don't want to say that it's Buddhist or that it's Nepalese or that it's cultural appropriation that he's borrowed. I would say rather that there's a lot of material in this course that comes from squinting at Buddhist practice in, in magical circles and squinting at Western magical traditions and going, there are, there are similarities here. Mm -hmm. And those similarities are sufficient that we can recognize that meditation is one of the critical elements of any magical or spiritual practice. Yeah. You, you, as, as hateful and as hurtful and as awful as it is to sit with your back straight, just breathing for 10 to 15 to 20 minutes every single day, <laughs> that, is, that is at the heart of any successful magical practice because you need to get that level of calm and that level of peace in yourself before you're going to develop any of the other senses before any of your other experiences are really going to open up <laughs> yeah and it's one of those things where you you have to keep going back to it too like you, you do as annoying as it is mm -hmm. i think it's deb castellano who, who talks about how awful it is for her to be a meditator and i <laughs> read her and i nod along with her and i say oh i feel that i totally get that but you and still got to do it. You still got to do it. Yeah. And it, it yields enormous results. It does. It, it, it doesn't mean that it's fun, but it yields enormous results. <laughs> and it bleeds over into everything too, right? Like meditation leads to mindfulness, which leads to, you know, stuff like the, um, the temple gesture that you were talking about earlier. Like it's, it's so core it also teaches you how to recognize altered states of consciousness and and even enter into them more easily like it's it's so uh, essential to like all of the magic stuff it's yeah man that is annoying <laughs> when i was a school teacher i had uh, uh, several years i had to teach a unit on buddhism mhm mm and and I said, I usually said on the first day of our unit on Buddhism, all we're going to do is we're going to do the core practice of Buddhism, which is to meditate for 15 minutes, which basically means we're going to sit here quietly and just breathe for 15 minutes. And, and this was middle school? This was middle school. Hmm. How did that go? Well, I'll tell you that. Almost every time that I did this, and I probably did this for about six years straight, some student would come up to me afterwards. This was probably an eighth grader, maybe a ninth grader, but usually an eighth grader. And they would say, Mr. Watt, you know I would never do this at school, but why does sitting in meditation for 15 minutes feel exactly like I feel after I've gotten high from marijuana. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and and I would just laugh and I would say, you mean you're smoking such bad weed that it just feels exactly like breathing properly for 15 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that should give people who don't meditate a chance to understand that if you sit a group of middle schoolers down who have never meditated before and you give them 15 minutes of silence to breathe and you you make a covenant with them that there will be no interruptions that that if anybody feels like they they can't possibly sit still for 15 minutes that they can they have to get up and leave and not disrupt anybody else they have to you have to come to certain agreements ahead of time but that hmm. that modern students are so jazzed up all the time that 15 minutes of silence and peace and breathing feels like getting high it feels like finally relaxing and being at peace and being at home in your own skin. Yeah. And f 15 minutes is all that it takes for a middle schooler who's that jumped up and that crazy. We should make so all imagine, of our students uh, meditate, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's problematic in other ways because you can encourage a level of mindful, uh, mindful meditation in schools and, I think that one of the risks of mind, mindful meditation to the exclusion of any other kind of practice, in, including prayer. I mean, I don't think that prayer necessarily belongs in schools. In fact, I don't think that it belongs in schools as an institutional thing. Mm -hmm. But people who meditate who become perfectly at peace and calm uh, under any sort of circumstance are also capable of deciding to perpetrate all kinds of evils because, well, I'm calm and I'm at peace with myself so I can make this perfectly horrible decision and not feel any qualms or like I'm in, I'm committing a, a moral atrocity. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's <laughs> a danger. I, I never really thought about that being a danger in meditation, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I could see that. That's... I, I think there is a reason that mind mindfulness meditation is such a big part of modern corporate training. If you're mm. at a high level in a company and you're a highly skilled meditator, but you can still sign the paperwork that fires 3,500 people, they're okay with that. God, that's... <laughs> Andrew, that is dark. <laughs> but I think that is something to keep in mind. That's something that I'm going to have to think about. Um, Good. Yeah, it's that... worth it. Okay. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to meditate on this. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, I mean, it's still cool. I, 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 I'm so, I find it so hard to believe that you got uh, middle school students to meditate. Like, I'm sure you did, but in my head, I'm trying to imagine what that must have looked like, uh, and it's very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I need a 3D printer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's see. Um, 
I guess that's... So, uh, the last thing that I had on my list that I wanted to ask you about was uh, astrological magic. Um, now, you went through the uh, Rufus Opus's Rufus um, Seven Spheres course, which is which is all about sort of like planetary connection and connecting with different planetary energies. Um, did you do that before you started working with astrological magic or was astrological magic sort of always there? Oh, I think that astrology and astrological magic is something that you get called to rather than something that you decide to take up for yourself. Oh, yeah? I I think that doing Rufus Opus's course mm-hmm. put me on somebody's map. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I declined to say who. Okay, but that's cool. But you I, don't have to. <laughs> but I think, I think that if you engage in some sort of planetary magical practice, like Seven Spheres, that sooner or later, astrology is going to come running and say, it's my turn. I could see that. I could. I. I definitely um, would would say that 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 happens. Like you basically, you basically are lighting up a beacon and saying, "Hey, look over here! I'm poking around in in new realms." <laughs> yeah, Gondor calls for aid, and it is time for you to show up. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you get started with it? Have you have you done any um, of like Christopher Warnock's courses or anything like that? I'll say that I'm I'm currently working my way through Chris Warnock's class, but I'm on homework number four, and I've been on homework number four, I don't know, for three or four years. So it's not going very fast. <laughs> I think you could I think you could do his class a lot faster than I have been doing. But well, I mean, I've seen you've got stuff that you've done about uh, the deacons. It looks like uh, so you have something about like the solar movement through the deacons, and then you've also got some stuff that you've done with the mansions of the moon, right? Like you've got um, ebooks that you've published about those. Yeah, so if you go to Amazon, there's there's ebooks of these sets of poetry. Oh, and, really? That's awesome. And those are those are poems that you can use in both a devotional and a and a magical context to communicate with the angels of the mansions or the, the Hellenistic spirits that are associated with the deacons or the faces. Mm-hmm. And I, for my own part, I think they work. They certainly work for me. In- um, have you heard any feedback from others to see, well, if they're working I think for there's, people? I think there's one review online that says that somebody really enjoyed them i'm not sure that they're using them in a magical context i had somebody buy all three books on the same day from india you mm-hmm. know if you put an ebook on amazon then apparently they can buy it in india and this person who i gather lives somewhere in the neighborhood of uh new delhi said this is amazing these work so well and i haven't heard anything from him him in two years so i'm hoping he didn't blow himself up oh you know maybe he just made a zillion dollars and he's just too busy to be on the internet now running running all of his um businesses and you know yeah i i can only hope cashing in all of his lottery tickets (laughs) i can only hope uh all right well i'll I'll make sure to include uh links to your ebooks too because those sound really interesting now i've used um 
I used your lunar uh, neo-orphic hymn, and I thought it was great. I thought it was um, it felt effective, and it was a nice addition to a a, a, a lunar talisman ritual that I had put together. So I was fantastic. Really, yeah, I I'm impressed with with how well the um, the neo-orphic hymns work. So I'm totally everybody should go read those right now. Stop listening to the podcast and go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're currently in a Venus hour, right? Um, hold on. I will look at what my. You're probably in a different hour since you're on the other side of the country. Yes, it's uh, I have a I have a planetary clock on my altar that lights up according to the day and hour. It's fantastic. Uh, but it's also really sunny in here. So it looks like maybe Saturn. <laughs> oh. But there's nothing wrong with Saturn. I get along great with Saturn. And Saturn's in a good spot right now, lumbering along well, through Capricorn or whatever. Let's uh let's give Saturn his due since he's currently in Capricorn. Okay. Ethereal Titan, time's own father, ancient of days through eternities vast, carry our spirits as light as feather, joining our present with future and past. You govern all perfection and decline, the seed in furrow and the harvest scythe, life's final stages and the gaping grave. With trudging step, you walk the outmost line of seven heavens, where abysses writhe and tremble. Fear stalks the steps of the brave who venture to walk in your silent hall, and only ghosts dance in your groaning tomb. For everything that lives must have its fall. Nothing lasts forever which leaves the womb. Yet all that dies must in due course renew what now begins and move towards completion. Each generation in turn goes to dust, as heat from the fire goes up the flue, and fuel becomes ashen dissolution. Even iron stoves crack and turn to rust. Always in like manner does time beat down every growing and every shrinking thing. Forgotten solitude follows renown, like cables unraveled to tangled string. Rhea's husband and Prometheus wise, who binds obstetric nature in his chains, Propitious here these prayers at sacred rites, Lord Saturn, make our blameless lives the prize, and come, peaceful death, reuse our remains as fuel for future lives and future lights. That is awesome. There's ideas in there that, that definitely remind me of the, uh, the Thomas Taylor, um, Orphic him and then other stuff in there that is that feels very wattish, you know. Like I can see, <laughs> I can see your experience in there as well. Uh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was great. You're welcome. I think it's the first time it's ever been recorded, so thank you for the opportunity. Oh, I'll put music to it and shit. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, when I uh, started uh, working through the seven spheres, I actually did Saturn first. Um, 
Oh, brave one. <laughs> well, you know, I've been it had been I've been doing ceremonial magic for like 20 years. And when I got in there, I was like, I feel good about Saturn and it was a Saturday and I was I was just like this is it. I'm, I'm starting with Saturn. Um and it was great. It was a heavy big experience which definitely, you know, got me started, but uh I don't feel bad for starting with Saturn and I have always kind of had like you know, I guess probably from reading um, Francis Yates, like I've had this experience, this this image of Saturn as being sort of a fountain of creation and creativity um, and not necessarily like the terrible greater malefic that we're supposed to that we're told Saturn is now. Um, and yeah, you kind of get that in, in Thomas Taylor's Orphic Hymn where he has. He talks about Saturn in almost like this neoplatonic way of being the progenitor of forms or something like that which is which i yeah. always thought was really cool how does that one go it's uh ethereal father mighty titan here great fire of gods and men whom all revere mm-hmm. endowed with various counsel pure and strong to whom perfection and decrease belong right there's that idea of starting at perfection and then the decline from perfection is the thing that belongs to saturn yeah and and in a very Neoplatonic way, the idea is the eternal perfection and its manifestation in physical reality is the decline. Yeah, it falls further and further away from the original source and becomes baser and more material. Uh, yes. Sort of and, less real and more matter. And there's that bit. I know it not from the original, but from the Marini consorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, album called the secret of secrets of the heavens do you know this piece it's um i don't marini consorts the marini consort this is a great album for magicians but it's it is renaissance music that follows the rules for what music of each of the spheres of the planets should sound like oh wow with an invocation that comes from Marsilio Ficino or other Renaissance sources. Starting each move. So there's, this is what Mars is like, followed by a Mars-like piece of music. This is what Jupiter is like, followed by a Jupiter-like piece of music. Hmm. Hmm. And the, the invocation to Saturn says, uh, however, Plato placed the higher part of the soul under the authority of Saturn. You know, magic belongs to Mercury, but contemplation and the real powers of the soul, those those belong to Saturn. <laughs> I I love that. It's a brilliant, brilliant album and and it's one that I wish were better known. I of will course, put a link to that in there too. <laughs> of course, with the 21st century, it's now possible to put the whole album to download it from your favorite music store mm-hmm. and have it on your phone and you're listening to a playlist or whatever. And suddenly a piece from the secrets of the heavens comes on and you look at your phone and you go, Oh, it's Mars hour and the Mars piece is playing. It's like a ringtone from Mars saying, <laughs> listen up and pay attention. I have something to tell you. 
(laughs) (laughs) It happens more frequently than you might imagine. I believe it. I totally believe it. I mean, I use um, Holst's uh, planets uh, pretty often when I do ritual. Same thing. Yeah, I've got it on my phone. And I don't know that I've ever seen... I, I don't know that I ever really put my phone on shuffle, but... Maybe it's time. Audio Mancy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Audio Mancy. Uh, all right, Andrew, this has been such an incredible conversation. I'm so glad that we found each other on Twitter or that I found you on Twitter. Whoever found whomever on Twitter, we did a good job. I love I, I really have enjoyed talking to you. Um, we've talked about a lot of your work, uh, which I'm going to link to. And I'm wondering if there are other places uh, in particular that you would like people to find you on the internet. My main blog is Andrew B. Watt, and it's andrewbwatt.com. Mm-hmm. My Twitter handle is Andrew B. Watt, all one word. Those are probably the easiest places to find me. All right. If if you're interested, and then of course there are books on Amazon. I am not the Andrew Watt that wrote all of the books about HTML and XML. That's somebody else. I think he's from Australia. You got to put your middle initial in there. Yeah, and yeah, and I'm also not the Andrew Watt who used to date Rita Ora or whatever her name is. There's <laughs> some singer and musician named Andrew Watt, and I'm not him either. And I'm not the I'm not the football player either. <laughs> yeah, I've got that problem also. There are some there are some An- there are some Eric Arnesons who are way more famous than I am, so I always have to use my middle initial also. Yeah. Um but yeah, okay. Welcome to the 21st century. I know there's just yeah. Have you ever seen uh who's it the um the one? It's a movie with uh oh, I can't remember the name of the guy. He's one of those like martial arts um jet lee i think it's jet lee jet lee and he has to go from university or they're going from universe to universe killing all the alternate jet lees (laughs) 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 uh i mean not to give anybody ideas but (laughs) no (laughs) all right but but the other thing that's like that and this is a good place to close is Uh the alien who goes around in his in his time traveling spaceship making sure that he insults every single living entity in the universe in alphabetical order. Oh, from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, <laughs> and he comes to Dent, Dent, comma, Arthur L., and he goes, hang on, I've done you before, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, hopefully we will have you on again sometime. That would be delightful. It was a pleasure chatting with you, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to My Alchemical Bromance. You can find us on the web at myalchemicalbromance.com. You can find us on Stitcher and iTunes and YouTube and uh, maybe Spotify. You can support us if you'd like to. In fact, we would love for you to support us through the Arnomancy Patreon. You can find a link in the show notes or on the website. It's patreon.com slash Arnomancy for just a buck a month. Uh, Tune in next time and see you soon.